Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. Thank you for coming this morning, being here. I hope you'll leave encouraged, and I hope you came encouraged too. I mean, for that matter, I hope everyone's encouraged. And thank you for watching online. Glad to have you. Thank you for tuning in. And again, just like or comment anything that you would like to to comment on, talk about later. But um, listen, you joined us in a series called Follow Me. And, and to get started this morning, I want you to remember the time when you're driving down the road and you see a cop. You feel that in the pit of your stomach? You feel that feeling? All of a sudden, it's like, shoot, am I really going that fast or not? Um, if you've ever been pulled over, and I have a couple times, the feeling that comes is not just, oh, there was a cop, but oh, they're turning around and now they're following me. And then when the lights go on, it's even a worse feeling. And as I think about the, that feeling, that moment, when you realize that you did something wrong, what goes through my mind isn't, first of all, like, what have I done wrong? What goes through my mind is, what is this going to cost me? What's it going to cost me in terms of what I'm going to have to pay? Or what's it going to cost me in terms of my reputation if somebody goes by me who maybe is on my team or, you know, that I work with or who's in my family? So what's it going to cost me, maybe financially, but also perhaps relationally? Because here's what we know. This principle is true. There's a price to, to pay when you break the law. When you break the law, there's a price to pay. That's just the way things work, right? It's the way things work also in your family. If you break the law of your family, that's why they've created such a thing as the doghouse, right? Because that way you get to spend time in the doghouse and hopefully pay for whatever sin you've, you know, created in your family. It's the same true for work. When you do something against the quote-unquote law at work, sometimes you may not get the promotion or you might just be looked at, you know, sideways a little bit like, uh, what's wrong with them? This is just generally true about life, that there's always going to be a price to pay when we break the law. Sometimes the law of our land, but often the law of relationships with one another. My question this morning to get us going here is, what is the price to pay when we break the law of God? What is the price to pay when we break the law of God? When we do things that we know we shouldn't do, that we know that God thinks we shouldn't do, who pays that price? And what does that actually look like? Now, if you've been in the church for a little while, you might say, well, hey, I have an answer to your question, because if you're in church, by the way, the answer to the question is either Jesus or the Bible. That's usually a good answer to any question that you have. So you might say, well, here's the answer. Jesus. I mean, Jesus died on the cross so that I don't have to pay for my sin anymore, and you would be right. That's a great answer. But in practicality, what I want to talk about is that we often... <laughs> will prefer to pay the price ourselves than to, than to turn and invite Jesus' death to pay that price for me. In fact, if you question that, and I can understand if you would question that, I want to take you in your mind's eye to Europe for a minute. Who wouldn't want to go to Europe? Imagine you could travel there right now. And I want you to imagine the beautiful cathedrals in Europe that were built during the Middle Ages. They were built off the backs of people who felt guilty about breaking God's law. They were built on the backs of this Catholic church um, theology called indulgences. This belief that we want you to pay for the sin that you have committed. So if you come to the priest, they're going to say, well, we're, we're going to suggest to you, you pay this amount of money or do this amount of Hail Marys and do this amount of service, whatever it is, and then you'll pay for it, literally paying for it, leaving and hoping that you feel better. Our church history is littered with this idea that we have to pay for it. Even when we break God's law, we have to pay for it. And there are physical buildings built that are incredibly beautiful that attest to this reality in the human heart. In fact, this issue of indulgences and wanting to pay for our own sin is what drove a professor in 1500s to write on a piece of paper, 95 ideals, and nail it to a wall at the Wittenberg Chapel door. And the first one that he wrote about was this. Martin Luther wrote, 
wrote this. He said, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent, will that the whole life of believers should be repentance. He was looking at this world of indulgences and our tendency to want to pay for our own sin and say, people, stop it. I want you to consider that Jesus invited you to repent instead of paying for your own sin. And I wish that we could all see, Luther writes, and this is what created the Protestant Reformation. You are in a church today that is a Protestant church, a protesting church. We're in that protesting movement. We protested, first of all, first of all, that there were even such a thing as indulgences, that we could add to the gospel, that somehow we could pay for our own sin, that the essence of this repentance is a turning of our heart and mind back to Jesus. And the problem with repentance when we break God's law is that it forces us to face our shame. And we will do just about anything to avoid facing our own shame. When I pay for my sin, I get to retain some honor. When I allow someone else to pay for it, I have to face my shame. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced that the reason that many of us don't repent and engage in this the way that we should is because we have a faulty view of God. This morning, my hope for you, my hope for you and for me is that we will see a character trait of God that maybe we have never seen so deeply before, that God, that God, God, meets repentance with rejoicing and not rejection. That God, when he sees people repent and turn to him after we have broken his law, that he meets us there with rejoicing and celebration. He offers compassion instead of condemnation. For many of us, we may hear those words, but it may not sink down into the depths of our heart. It didn't for Jesus' original audience when he talked about this issue. And I want to take you there this morning. I'm not going to put the text up on the screen this morning, so I want to invite you to turn in your Bible, if you have one, to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. Be glad to give that to you as our gift to you if you don't have a Bible. But I invite you to open up your phone or grab a Bible near you. And Luke chapter 15, third book in the New Testament, two-thirds of the Bible to the right, you'll find Luke. And in Luke 15, we're going to hear Jesus engaging with some people who are dealing with this issue of payment of sin and who is going to do that and the issue of rejection or rejoicing, compassion or condemnation. And the setup is here in verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15, reading from the New International Version. Luke is telling his story, and he says this, Now the tax, <clears throat> excuse me, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Imagine that, all those people gathering around to hear Jesus, but, and here's the contrast, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, or they complained, or they grumbled, depending upon your translation. And here's what they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Sit in this moment for a minute, because this is the setup, this is the context. You have a group around Jesus who are tax collectors and sinners. They are people who have violated God's law. They broke the law of God. And then you have people who are religious, who feel like they haven't broken the law of God. And so how is it that you treat people who have broken the law of God? Do you treat them with condemnation or do you treat them with compassion? And you have one group, the Pharisees and leaders of the law, who are treating this group with condemnation. Why? 
because when you sin and fail, they know, right? They know that God meets sin with condemnation, that you must work your way through a process. But Jesus engages very, very differently. And this is the issue, that these Pharisees and teachers of the law will condemn the sinners because they think God condemns their own sin. They don't see God as, first of all, a God of compassion who rejoices over repentance. They see God as a condemning, rejecting God who rejects sin and failure. And Jesus, I think, understands this very dynamic in the room. And instead of, I think Jesus is very compassionate in his invitation to everybody in this moment, including those Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus tells three stories. Two are a little less personal, but the third is more personal. And in these stories, he's inviting both audiences, the teachers of the law and the tax collectors and sinners, the people who have broken God's law. He's inviting both of them to repentance, to turn and to understand the depth of the heart of God as a heavenly father. And he begins, and you may have heard some of these stories. He begins in verse three to tell him this parable. And by the way, this in... Um, when Jesus was telling this in Luke's account, verses 3 through verse 6 are all one sentence. Now, they're broken up in different sentences in your English translation, but the reason that's important is because Jesus is about to say, he's about to present one idea, and he's going to ask for affirmation of one idea. It's just all together. You can't pick apart his story and say, well, I agree with this part, but not that part. He's just presenting one idea. I don't know if I can do this, but in one breath, I might try to read this all in one you know, one big um, sentence, because that's the way it was. So verse 3, Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And after he finds it, when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. <sighs> okay. One big idea. One big idea. Don't you agree? This would happen. If all of a sudden the sheep is missing, a shepherd will go out and find him, and then he's going to find him. He's going to throw it on the shoulder. He's going to rejoice on the way back, and then he's going to bring everybody together to rejoice. Don't you agree that this is the way it would be done on the whole? And then he says in verse 8, excuse me, verse 7, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And so Jesus introduces two big ideas in this very first parable that he's going to carry through each of his stories, three stories. It's first of all the idea of rejoicing, and it's second of all the idea of repentance. In fact, you see the very words in your text in front of you, that this is about rejoicing. Picture the shepherd rejoicing, the people rejoicing, and about repentance, a turning. And this is where Jesus says, there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who essentially think they don't need to repent or who do not need to repent. Now, this repentance thing, by the way, is, is I'm using a word, and I just want to quickly define it. Repentance is this lifestyle change. It's a, it's a move from going right to left, going forward to backward. It's a lifestyle change that's driven by a heart or attitude change. So it's not just a, a feeling of, I'm sorry, I did something wrong. That's kind of feeling sorry, like I feel sorry. A repentance includes an active behavior. It says, yes, ooh, that was wrong. Now I'm going to change something about the way that I live. It's an active turning built off of an interior change of heart or value. So this is this repentance piece. And this is the characteristic. When Jesus looks at sinners, 
He looks at him and says, I'm going to rejoice over your repentance because that is worth celebrating. He doesn't look first and say, I can't wait to condemn you because of what you've done. When there's repentance, that is where the rejoicing is. There isn't rejoicing over the 99 who have stayed. Isn't that ironic? There isn't rejoicing over that. There is rejoicing over, over repentance, this issue of repentance. Hear that, please. There's rejoicing over repentance. There's rejoicing over repentance, not rejoicing over staying, not rejoicing over morality, not rejoicing over moralism or religious behavior. There isn't rejoicing on that. There is rejoicing over repentance. So he goes on and tells another story. Again, using one big sentence, verses eight and nine, one big sentence to make the point again. He says, or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and the neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Of course, that's what we would do. They would agree with that. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, this idea, repentance, rejoicing together, just trying to tell that story. But here's the truth, and you know this. Repentance is so ridiculously hard. Like, repentance is a living nightmare to be in. And you know why that is. Because you have to face the shame of what you have done. You have to verbalize. You have to maybe write down. You might have to confess to someone else and to God, this is how I have done it. This is what I have done. You may not know this, but here's what I've done. And facing the shame of some of your deepest parts of who you are is a place that any one of us would avoid at all costs. And if there's a way I can pay for it, and kind of ease my conscience, that would be great. Maybe I'll give a little bit more in the offering next week. Maybe I'll go to church. Maybe I'll read my Bible. Maybe I'll listen to Christian music. Maybe I'll turn off this and turn on that. Maybe I'll pay for it in some other way. There's got to be an easier way because you have to pay for when you break the law, right? So there's got to be an easier way. I'd rather pay for it than turn in repentance. And this is where Jesus invites further. He says, listen, the rejoicing is over repentance. The rejoicing isn't over your obedience. It's over your repentance. And then, just in case this isn't enough, he wants to give a different picture of God, I think, to the Pharisees especially who are in the room. And then he tells a story that many of you have heard, even if you've never been in church before, the story of what we now call the prodigal son, of a son who gets his inheritance, runs away, squanders it, the economy tanks, he's in trouble, he comes running back to the father, and they have this conversation with an older brother at the end. You may know that narrative. Let's look at it again through the eyes of rejoicing and repentance. Verse 11, Jesus continued, now making this personal. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided the property among them. Well, not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Pause the story right there. This sets us up for the issue at hand. Now, all of a sudden, the cop has pulled him over. And he's wondering, what am I going to have to pay? All of a sudden, he's being held accountable because I really, I really messed up my family. I did something I shouldn't have done. I got all my money now. It was an incredible, shameful thing to do. And now the economy is tanked, and I'm in need. And what am I going to do? It's in those moments where we find ourselves all the time. It's in those moments where we have to stop and ask, what do I do now? When confronted with my own failure, when I'm in that moment... I have some things that I can do. 
And what he does first is the very first thing that I do as well. As I think about, and we're going to walk through what the, the son does, I'm going to suggest four things based on the text that he does. When he's faced with, am I going to repent or am I not going to repent? In this moment of need, what am I going to do? The first thing he does, quite honestly, is the first thing that I do as well. And it's this, work. It's work. What can I do to get out of the feeling that I'm in? What can I do to save the situation? What can I do to regain some honor where I feel some shame? How can I maintain face and dignity in the face of this kind of failure that I have done? Because look at what he does in verse 15. This is where I get that he works as the first step. So he went. As he looks at his condition, he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's stopping. He's saying, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to fix this situation. This situation stinks. I've gotten myself in here. No one else to blame. I'm going to work it through. And that's his first plan to work. But here's what happens. He longs to fill his stomach with pods of the pigs, but no one gave him anything. In other words, my plan isn't working. What do you do when your plan to make yourself better doesn't work? What do you do when you want to be a better husband, a better father, a better mom, a better wife, a better leader, a better coach, a better teacher, a better whatever? What do you do when the things that you want to make you better that you plan on working on don't work? What do you do? And this is where he has, I'm going to say this, he has an awakening. He has an awakening in verse 17. When he came to his senses, he looked around, he's like, this isn't working. I'm not getting anywhere. This is kind of a moment of what do I do? And here's what we do. We have, we have the chance. There's, a, there's an awakening. He said this, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Like, this isn't working. There's an awakening of like, mm, my plan isn't working. Here's what happens. <laughs> And you've seen this over and over again. You have, you have one of two choices. One, you can cycle back up to work again. And many people do that. They say, well, the problem is my plan wasn't good enough. I wasn't getting up early enough. I'm eating too much food. I wasn't reading enough or praying enough. I wasn't going to church enough. So I just need to work more. Like, that's my awakening response. I'll just cycle back up to work more. That's how I'll get better. And that's how I'll deal with the, the failure and shame in my own life. I'll, I'll work more. After my awakening, I'll work more. People who double down people who pivot on the issue, people who are saying, ah, I, don't, I don't think I can ever apologize. Those are people who just return right back to work again. Like, I'm going to make it better because I have to save face. The last thing I want to do, and the reason that people, when they get an awakening, come back to work again is because they can't go to the third natural step. And the third step is this, it's repentance. And he goes to that very step. But it's such a scary place to go to that you don't want to do that and you want to try work again. How can I do this again? Because look where he goes in verse 18. When he finally faces it, verse 18, he says, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm just going to call it what it is. I have sinned against God or heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He adds that. He adds that. I don't think that's what God is asking him to do, but he adds it. And isn't that how sin makes us feel? We feel like failures for sinning, and then the devil beats us up for feeling like failures. You feel like a failure, and then you feel unworthy for feeling like a failure. 
That's exactly the way the sun feels. You blew it? Yes, you did. That's why you're such a failure. That's why you're so unworthy. That's why you need to pay more. You need to go to whatever more. You need to add more and do more and do more. And the invitation is to cycle back to work. But please, whatever you do, don't face it. If you face it, you'll be so ashamed. And everyone will see your unworthiness. And the son steps into it. And then what he does next, verse the end of verse 19, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. You know what he does next? Check this out. After repentance, what, what the son does, he goes back to work again. He does. That's his plan. I'm going to go to my father and say, I've blown it. I can't do this. I'm going to repent. And then I'm going to work on saving face. <laughs> Just hire me again as one of your servants, because that's what I know to do. I know how to pay for when I've broken things and I need to retain honor. But this isn't what the father has in mind. Let's continue in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, and he rehearses the story, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father, almost ignoring him, said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. Look what the father does with this list quick. He replaces this last step. After there's repentance, he says, you want to work? Let me kind of cross out that work for you. Let me tell you, after repentance comes rejoicing. After repentance comes rejoicing. When you've repented and you've come to me, don't give me your plan to work. Please don't give me your plan to work. You're here. I... You're here. Let's celebrate. And listen, you celebrate, and you know this is true. You celebrate what you value. And so the message in your heart and the message in the son's heart is, I am unworthy to be called your son. To which the father comes and says, I know that message is in your heart. Let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to throw the biggest party right now for you. And you only celebrate what you value. You really do. He says, I value you so much. I want to celebrate you right now. He replaces this work with rejoicing. But it isn't the only thing that's going on. Meanwhile, verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, what in the world is going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And so the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you gave me, and you've never given me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property of prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. The older son. He is, in my opinion, in a living nightmare right now. He's in an absolute living nightmare. Many of you know I like to watch sports on TV and I like to play sports. He was better at it earlier. Some might debate that, but he was better at it earlier in my life than now. But one of the things I find most interesting when I watch sports, when you could fill stadiums and all that, and when you see the Super Bowl or large sporting events, there are security personnel who are inside the stadium, but they are facing away from the action and they're watching the stands. And I've commented to my family all the time, like, what a bummer that would be to be so close to the action and just be the rule keeper. 
You can't even see when they score a touchdown. You don't even know when a goal is scored. You're just standing there. You're almost like you have field access, but you don't get to celebrate with anybody. And this is the living nightmare of the moral son, the older son. He is in the father's house, but all he's doing is looking up at the stands to see who's keeping the rules. He can't celebrate what's going on behind him, and this is a living nightmare. If you're a Christian and you call yourself a Christian and this is how we live, it is an absolute living nightmare. It is a joyless way to live, to work, to work, to work, to fail, to be aware of our failing, to kind of do a pseudo repentance, but return to work again and just keep working our way and never be able to celebrate the Father's compassion for when we repent. What a place to be. And so the music is happening in the house behind him. And it's almost as if now when we re-enter the context of how this story is told, Jesus is speaking. He leaves a story at the older brother, but he also, we, we see he's talking to the Pharisee and to the tax collectors and sinners. He's telling the story. And the Pharisees are the older brother and the tax collectors are the younger brother. And the younger brother needs to repent because he sinned. The tax collectors have sinned, but the older brother needs to repent too because he's counting on his morality to keep him in heaven, to keep him in the Father's house. And it's as if the, the, the lens kind of comes back and we see what Jesus is doing, that he's inviting both the older brother and the younger brother to repentance because he wants people to be brought in to see when you repent, I am not going to be angry with you. And when you repent, and turn. I am a God, and your heavenly Father is a God who is compassionate, not condemning, who rejoices and doesn't reject. But if you believe that God condemns rather than is compassionate, if you believe that God rejects rather than rejoices, you will be and I will be like the older brother, like the Pharisee. We will live a joyless life. There will be no freedom in the celebration because it's impossible to celebrate when you're carrying the burden of morality. It's impossible to do that. And so I have a question for you this morning. Let's put it this way. How would, how would my life be different if I really believed my heavenly father meets repentance with rejoicing and not rejection? How would my life be different if I really believed that, that my heavenly father meets my repentance with rejoicing and not rejection? Think about it this way. Who, who would you engage? Right now you're not engaging. Who's maybe a tax collector or sinner in your life? Where might you go that right now you're not going? Because that's, that's a sinful area. I mean, that's a place we want to avoid because we know God is pure and, and holy. And What would you do what activities would be different? If you really believe deep down inside that Jesus invited the Pharisees and tax collectors to see God as their heavenly father, as a God who is compassionate and not condemning. And Paul writes about this in Romans 2, one of my favorite passages. He says, please don't show contempt for the, for the long suffering, for the mercy of God. Don't ever forget, he says, this is my translation, don't ever forget that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Now, I don't know what you think about how you handle yourself when you break the law of God, when you're not consistent enough, when you're not faithful enough, 
when you're not honest enough, when your integrity is a little questionable in this area. I don't know how you handle yourself when you know that you haven't loved your spouse the way you should or honored your parents the way you should or done the work the way that you should. I don't know how you handle yourself when you're in those moments when you feel like the cop has kind of come up behind you and you're going to have to pay because everybody pays when you break the law. Because that's when we can cycle right through, well, let me work it out. That may not have worked. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to pay for it because everyone pays when the law is broken. And Jesus is telling this story of, don't we all agree? When you lose a sheep, you come find him. When you lose a coin, you celebrate. And when your son is lost and returns, there is rejoicing. There's absolute rejoicing. And so I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. If you have never seen God, your heavenly father, as a God who is deeply compassionate over your turning, please, please ask this question. How would I live differently if I really believed that God is my heavenly father, rejoices over repentance, not rejects me because of my failures? All right. Next week, I'm looking forward to um, Seth Fisher speaking here this morning, speaking at Grace Point. That'll be, that'll be good. Hope you can be here or tune in for that. And the week after that, we'll pick up the series on another story of Jesus. All right. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the chance to be in this story this morning to see again a picture of a Heavenly Father who enters our greatest place of shame and regret with compassion, not with condemnation. And boy, what a difference that could make if I could embrace that, if I could set aside my tendency to pay for my own sin and failure, to beat myself up, to remind myself of how unworthy I am. What a difference it would make if I embraced the compassion of a heavenly father and turned in repentance right away, knowing that I won't be rejected or condemned. But this is why you celebrate, God. And so I pray that you would warm our hearts to this truth, move in us, that we can, in humble ways, come to join in the celebration, to hear the music of the Father's house wafting in the air and be invited to join that celebration. A celebration not of the failure of the younger son, but a celebration of the compassion of a heavenly father. I pray that you give us the courage and the humility to long for that, both in ourselves and for the people around us whom we love. We pray this in Jesus' name.